Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 is where we're going to pick up again. And let's lift it up and look at this particular gift. To another, the working of miracles. To another, a working of miracles. We've already identified as we begin to lay a foundation here that Paul has brought to the attention of the church at Corinth nine gifts, and we are well into number five or number six at this point, almost halfway through, almost all the way through, and we're dealing with the gift of, in our King James Bible, the working of miracles. Those two words go together for a reason. They're seen almost in every text that we deal with the idea of miracle or miracles. And we want to once again delineate them by definition and then watch their categories emerge by expression or by example in the text. And of course, uh, when we're done, we can do some Q&A since it's Friday and we can enjoy ourselves. One of the things I talked about in terms of miracles last time is that the idea of miracles here needs to be understood in terms of its distinction between it, miracles, and that which is done merely supernaturally. They're two sides of the same coin. We could always argue that supernatural events are um, requisite or foundational to miracles. Where a miracle is, there is a supernatural event, no doubt about it. But we cannot say in the reverse where there is a supernatural event, there is a miracle. And the reason why we say that, and I just kind of want to put that in your hearing, is that then we would really have no distinction between a miracle or a supernatural events. If we said the supernatural and a miracle are one and the same, then we might as well just use one word or the other. Supernatural or miracle. That's a point of logic. It makes sense, right? So while two things can be similar, it does not make them what? The same. They will have distinct categories, distinct qualities and distinct properties that are essential. When I made a distinction between the supernatural and the miraculous, we were talking about the supernatural being fundamentally that which takes place beyond or outside or transcending empirical observation, the the physicality of the eyes or the physical senses grasping something that would create an aha moment. And that when something is done supernaturally, it is done very much so for the purpose of not having any kind of immediate or direct perceptivity to be able to say, ah, I saw that. It can nevertheless still be supernatural. So we began to talk about things like, and I'm going to reiterate it again today, what it means to be born again. When we talk about being a new creature in Christ, we are talking supernatural things. We're not talking fundamentally miracles. We're talking supernatural. We can also, you know, out of what would be good faith or um, charity, we can understand when people say, it was a miracle that God saved me. We can say that. um, But if we wanted to be a little bit more precise and technical, most salvation experiences are exactly as Christ denominated them in John chapter 3. The wind blows hither and yon. You cannot tell from whence it comes nor where it goes. 
The wind is real, necessary to all life. It is mysterious. It is powerful, no doubt. But it is that role of what I've said for many years, silent servant, quiet servant, that humble servant that takes on no open bragging of their personal presence. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Even in his own personal attributes, he doesn't come to glorify himself. Is that right? And so in that sense, what we're saying when we use the metaphor of the wind, just to kind of get our thoughts going, there are a lot of things that the Spirit of God will do at the supernatural level for the people of God and for human beings in general and to glorify God that will take place where only a discerning ear or a discerning mind can know that was God. There are times when God does things and people are too blind to recognize it, right? You and I can surmise that. We can, we can, we can, I shared with you uh, last week, if not the week before, uh, Dr. Uh, Ben Carson um, would talk frequently about how God intervened in his medical affairs and its operations, and he knew it was nothing but God. But you can imagine in the room, atheists or agnostics or people who are blind to the reality of spiritual things, never seen at all the hand of God. And yet you and I would go, that was the hand of God. That makes sense, right? So when I talk about being uh, born again, John chapter three, can you pull that up three through five? Just, you know, as I'm quoting, we want those verses up. Uh, we're talking about the analogy of the wind and the analogy of the wind is frequently an analogy of the spirit of God, although um, it has its counterpart too. And even in that sense, having its counterpart, the analogy of the spirit of God being represented by the wind, but also the enemy functioning like the wind, every uh, wind of doctrine and the cunning slate of men by which they lay in wait deceive, to deceive. The devil can function in that same way too, can he not? Right, because what we say about unseen forces, which is where we're going actually as we deal with miracles here in a moment, in the unseen realm, there are supernatural events taking place on both sides, the dark and the light. You need to know that. So as we're talking about the power of God, because that's what our word is, miracle here really is dunamis, dunamias, literally, and it's just what we would call um, uh, 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 flexive form of the word dunamis. Dunamis is the term from which we get in our English, it's a later use, dynamite or power, something that has the capacity for explosion, explosion to break up something in order to change something. That's the idea of dunamis. That's the idea, idea of of, uh, of power in this context. So when we are, when we are looking at verse 9 or verse 10 to another, the working of miracles, it really is to be understood as the workings or literally the energy. I want to drive that home grammatically. Energon is our common term for working, working, the energon of dunamis, the energy that produces a dynamic, the energy that produces a dynamic. That's a very literal way to put it. Now, it's really interesting because the energon is something that is constantly associated both with God and the people of God. We quote this often, Philippians 2.12, for it is God who worketh, who worketh, energon, who is working, who is working in you. That's supernatural, is it not? 
So when we make that proposition, we are not saying to people, hey, look how God is working in me because they're not going to see it. It's supernatural. It's not perceived with the naked eye. It's not designed to be. Therefore, it doesn't classify as a what? Miracle. Right. But we know it's real. God is working in us. God is working in us. This is what he's saying. Uh, Verse 13, I think it will be the text there. Great verse. For it is God which worketh in our gion. That's the term. Energy. Energy. And you can imagine now a force taking place underneath or intrinsically or behind the act of dunamis. A force and energy. Literally in Greek grammar, they use the term efficacy. There's an efficacy behind the event that is explosive that becomes the power. So that shows up, right? That makes sense. All right, that's, that's kind of what I wanted you and I to be thinking about in terms of like the, the material source that is actually driving this phraseology in 1 Corinthians 10, 10, to another the working of miracles, to another the working of miracles. An individual is now under the supervision of God here. And God is working in him and working through him to produce a power event, a power event. And that power event is described as a miracle. That makes sense, right? This is what we've got going on. I know I, know I may be sounding redundant, but I want to drive it home because now we're going to be looking at the text of Scripture. And as we look at these several texts of Scripture, what you and I want to be able to comprehend is the backdrop, the energy driving it, and then the immediacy of the explosion of the power breaking out into a manifestation. That's what we want to see. Because that's the miracle, okay? That's the gift that's operating here. If you can capture that mentally, then you're doing good. It's the working of power. And so we were looking at a lot of the gospel events where Messiah, of whom I told you also over the last two weeks, this is the messianic age, Jesus coming, his physical presence in the early days of the, before the church and in the gospels. He's doing these miracles everywhere. For him, it's common. But these miracles are these manifestations of uh, power are also said to be attributed to his people. So we will see three categories of people enjoying the benefit of the energy that produces a visible impact in a miraculous way. Christ first, then the apostles and then selected members in the church. So those categories need to be kept by you because you know, if we were to if we were to get off the beaten path, the question might be asked, does everybody have the gift of miracles or the gift of working miracles? And the answer must be quickly said no. OK, so it's important for you and I to know that. But those three categories will show up. We know they showed up in Jesus life. Right. Well, they also showed up in the apostles life because Jesus says, I will give you power. That's Acts 1 eight. Pull it up briefly. So we're going to walk through this now. So here's where the promise comes in. Acts chapter 1a. And as you observe the text, as we walk through this, here's what you know is present wherever power is, the spirit of God. Wherever power is, the spirit of God is present, right? Wherever power is, because he's giving out the gifts. He's the immediate gift giver. Jesus assigns the place 
and the event where we act, the Father resources the energy, but the Holy Spirit gives the gifts, okay? So the immediacy of the third person is going to be presumed, assumed, everywhere gifts are showing up. Now here, it says, but you shall receive what? That's dunamis. That's our term. So imagine what that means uh, from the standpoint of, of Messiah telling the disciples that this will occur, but you shall receive power in the same way he had power. You shall receive power. In fact, this is what Jesus prophesied by way of, uh, by way of gesture and expression in John 20, when the disciples were in the upper room, trembling out of fear for the rulers, Jesus said, peace be still. And then he breathed on them and said, receive ye the holy what? the Holy Ghost. What was the inference? Receive the third person, which will give you power to exercise different categories of gifts by which Christ would be glorified. So that's it. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and that power will be served to do what? Show you to be his witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately the other most parts of the world. I love the way that, that, that uh, passage is laid out. The promise is given, it's qualified, and then its purpose is also laid out. Jesus says, you shall receive power. That is a promise. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That is the qualification, the third person. And you shall be my witnesses. Now, here's the function of those gifts. You are now going to be competent to be able to bear witness to the grace of God in your life. You need the spirit of God to do. Here's the scope. Now, it's going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately in the world. You and I can imagine that that verse has been being fulfilled since Pentecost up to this hour. Would you agree with that? All right. So good. Very good. Very good. So power there is our same word. He could have literally said, but you shall receive miraculous working. You shall receive miraculous working. But I like dunamis because it will give you two shades of that meaning, the supernatural and then the miraculous. Sometimes it's merely supernatural, but other times it's what? Miraculous. Hence, chapter two immediately grants both a supernatural event as well as a miraculous one. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2, verses 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, which in its own right is a prophetic fulfillment, they were all with one accord in one place, verse 2. And, 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 and we would call that the obedience of faith because they were told to be somewhere and wait. So they were somewhere waiting because the master said, wait, wait for the third person. What a profound sense of commitment to Jesus about something they had never, ever of themselves collectively experienced. You wait. And and we don't even know if Jesus told them how long it was going to be. So the obedience of the sheep to wait for Christ is now rewarded, is it not? So listen to the language. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty what? Right. That's the metaphor. It was a sound to help some of you. It was not something visible. It was supernatural at the audio level. They could hear the wind. They could not see it. There came a sound. So, you know, if, if God wanted to actually 
amplify that kind of, you know the sound, you've been in storms before, you've heard winds really blow, they've been powerful, they've been majestic, they've been mighty, they've been amazing, have they not? And you and I didn't question what that was, we knew it was the wind, because it could move you. Right, nobody was moved, because it wasn't a literal wind. No one was, the house wasn't blowing apart. The roof wasn't coming off. You know, shingles weren't flying everywhere. This was the sound of the wind. Now we're dealing with the supernatural. Am I making some sense? Now we're dealing with the supernatural under the metaphor of the wind. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a, that construction there means we're dealing with an analogy as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. In other words, this sound was everywhere in the room where all these people were. How many were in the room? 120, okay? The number 12 times 10. The number 12 being government, the number 10 being uh, tenfold, or a fullness of what we might call the Pentecostal first fruits. Because Pentecost is what's going on here. And Pentecost is when you have what is called the first fruits of the harvest. So at Pentecost, they would take up the sheaves or the wheat in that first 50 days. And they would do a wave offering before God, Leviticus 22 and 23. And and thank God for that first what we call Pentecostal harvest, because now we're waiting for the full harvest. So this is what is called the first fruits event meaning this is the first fruits of the spirit being poured out on the community collectively, and they will be the initial harvest workers in the field. They will be the initial harvest workers in the field. Jesus said it in John 4, the fields are all white to harvest. The laborers are what? Right, so he's not increasing necessarily the laborers, he's increasing their capacity to labor by the outpouring of the Spirit. We see no numbers increasing in any kind of significant way. In this first Pentecostal event, it's 120. That's nothing compared to the tens of thousands that were following Messiah throughout his ministry. By the time he ended his ministry, it's diminished down to a handful of people. Does that make sense? But see, numbers don't matter with God. It's not about how many numbers. Of course, 3,000 are gonna be saved in chapter two. And again, 5,000 in chapter four, and then many will be saved throughout the book of Acts. Those numbers will be come in, but they will come in largely as a consequence of the labor of these 120 in the upper room. That makes some sense, right? You shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So here it is. This is the supernatural. Verse three, watch this. And there appeared unto them what? cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon their head. Now we have the miraculous. Did did that make sense? So we go from a noise of a wind to a manifestation of tongues of fire sitting on their head. So the witness, which is Luke, the witness is telling us that these 120 in the upper room became objects of the presence of God like a lamp, like a lamp that would have a wick and on that wick would be a flame. Ye are the light of the world. Is it making sense? It has to. Because Jesus was that light. John the Baptist was that fire. Jesus said that. He was a light. John was a light. Every believer is a light. 
And we want to see that that metaphor of the spirit of God working on us and in us and through us to shed light to the room. Right. That's what's going on here. So you have the supernatural in the presence of the spirit. You have now the uh, miracle of the manifestation of the spirit under the rubric and metaphor are the analogy of cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon them. Verse four. Uh, verse four, uh, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the what? Spirit gave them utterance. So right now power is working supernaturally. There is a visible manifestation of the metaphor of the tongues of fire as a miracle event because the miracle event is about to do the next category of design and purpose. Miracles were designed as signs. So you can write it down. Whenever a miracle is taking place, it's serving as a sign. The miracle in itself is not the end, but it's serving as a sign. So now we have the miracle and the miracle becomes a sign. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He says, I will give you power. You will show signs and wonders. This is what he said. Well, that's what he did. And so here's the thing you also might know. Whenever there is a miracle, it's serving as a signpost to point to the God that did the miracle. So what's going to happen? You guys already know what's going to happen. People are about to be drawn by the sign. Are they not? They're about to be drawn by the sign. They weren't drawn by the wind. Because the wind was unperceived. It was for the 120 in upper room. They're drawn by the sign of the cloven tongues and the gift of languages expressing. We'll deal with that when we get down to that category. But I'm letting you see how the power is showing up expressly as God meant it to be. The third person is present. Supernatural things are taking place. The people of God now are becoming witnesses for him. And the people are being drawn by their speaking. Notice what it says. uh, As the spirit gave them utterance, verse five. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout Jews out of every nation under heaven. This is a this here is what we call a uh, prophetic formula, formulaic construct, a prophetic formulaic construct, meaning when it says and there were dwelling at Jerusalem, That's the point of reference for these Jews. Devout men, this was the character of them in terms of their Judaism, out of every nation under heaven. It doesn't mean literally out of every nation under heaven, but it becomes a representative, a synecdote of men from everywhere, okay? Men from, because we still have yet nations to be built from the first century till now. This is to help some of us who can uh, be challenged sometimes with not understanding how progressive revelation works. I've, I've been in ministry so long, I know mostly all of the, the, the traps and gins and snares of not thinking things through carefully. That's the reason why I'm stopping, okay? I'm stopping and saying that if you take this literally, this is called a wooden literal interpretation, you're gonna set yourself up for an argument because the atheist will come in and say, it's not possible that devout Jews could be coming from every nation under heaven. Because they would also know that nations are built over centuries and millenniums. And the gospel is going to go into all nations, is it not? Right. But it hadn't gone into all nations yet. And all Jews hadn't been scattered in the diaspora to all nations. So you have what is called a sort of um, a specimen of the prophecy of the gospel going into all nations 
but first in the drawing of those who observe the Pentecostal feast. By, uh, by the way, just in case you don't know, it's 17 nations here. 17 nations of Jews, okay? You can write, you can categorize them while I'm talking to you, okay? If I'm off, I'm only off by one or two, and that's all because of subtle, subtle context. And they're all local nations, all right? They're all local, all right? They're Jerusalem, they're the Arabia, they are Syria, okay? They're not far around the world. They are in Asia Minor. Look at what it says, verse six. While I'm here, I'll just walk you through. Now, when this was noised abroad, what was noised abroad? The fact that they were speaking in these languages. So you got a you got a noise that they heard inside on a private level. Then you got a visible sign of cloven tongues at a public level. Then you got a noise in abroad that there is this thing going on of people speaking in languages at a public level. It's actually reverberating out to the community. I got that because now we're engaging in a miraculous sign. And signs are meant to draw. So we got a drawing here. That makes sense, right? All right, look at it again. Now, when this was noisy abroad, the multitude came together. And they were what? Confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own what? Right, so now we qualify for the moment. We'll deal with it later when we press into glossolalia or into languages. We're not there. But this gives you a framework of what's taking place. People are speaking languages that they had never, ever learned because the ones that are speaking, as we're going to learn, are all Galilean. In fact, they are not even what we would call your, your, uh, your classical Jews from Judaism. They've got a kind of hoodish, uh, altered form of, of uh, Hebrew and Aramaic going on that is distinguishable in the whole of the community. These are people who at the echelon economically are relatively poor, and we would, we would basically say they speak kind of backyard countryist, kind of Arabic uh, uh, or Hebrew. Does that make some sense? Right, just a backyard linguistic kind of uh, unique uh, people group. Notice what it says. How is it that they're speaking in our language, verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled. That's what signs are designed to do. Cause you to be amazed, cause you to marvel. They're not answering anything. They're simply drawing your attention. Like the fire the first time you saw it in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. The same thing. Moses saw it. It amazed him and it drew him to it. That's the goal of it. And then God talked out of the bush, if you will, prefiguring this account. Because God is talking here. Notice what it says. And they were all amazed, marvel, saying to one another, Behold, are not all these which speak what? How insightful is that coming from the crowd who's observing this miracle, being able to assess that the people that are speaking are not from these different countries that we're from, and they're all speaking to us in language we can understand. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is what we call the breakthrough gift. The gift of languages is a breakthrough gift. It sets aside the rigor of having to learn unique genres and dialects of different countries, which is a long process that could take years to learn. 
supernaturally, you are given languages so that you can immediately communicate to people the wonderful works of God. You guys got that? That's a breakthrough gift. In other words, God knew that on the day of Pentecost, he was going to pour out the third person. God knew on the day of Pentecost that thousands and thousands of Jews were going to be at Pentecost. So God knew that this is the day that Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, is going to be glorified in all the Jews who are waiting for Messiah. And now Messiah shows up in the preaching of those who are Galileans to their brothers from every nation under heaven or the 17 nations. Let's walk through this, verse 8. And then we'll move on. We got other verses I want to share. How hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were what? Very, very tight, terse, and strict interpretation as to what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with a kind of alien gibberish. We're not dealing with a kind of verbiage that is not identified as the linguistic structure of known people groups. Does that make some sense? It's important to know that because once we get into that dialogue around Glossolalia and we get to talking about the notion of foreign or unknown or angelic tongues, We'll talk about why those categories are difficult, if not completely, to be rejected. We'll talk about that when we get there, okay? Because it's important. So what we have here is uh, languages being spoken, and this would be called tongues. But we also have here the interpretation of tongues. So do you notice what Paul did? I'll tell you now while we're working through this. When he gave the categories of gifts in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Twice he gave as the last gifts the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation because he wanted to play that down because the church at Corinth was playing it up. For them, the most important thing was the gift of tongues. Paul was saying, no, the most important thing is not the gift of tongues. So as he was speaking twice, he played it down. And it's important to to know why it will go on. So notice what it says in verse uh, nine. I want to enumerate this if I can. Parthian, Medes, Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia. Keep that that idea. Will you keep that up? Because I'm going to be talking about that Sunday. The dwellers in Mesopotamia. You know where Mesopotamia is, okay? That's, That's Father Abraham. Okay, that's going all the way back to the beginning of the promise. I'm going to talk about that on Sunday, okay, because we're dealing with Balaam, all right? Balaam is a Mesopotamian prophet, okay? So there's a lot going on here. Four, then Judea, five, Cappadocia, six, and Pontius, seven, uh, and Asia. Now they're becoming very general, eight in uh, in this, because in Asia, you you could have all kinds of dialects. Phrygia, 10, Pamphylia, 11, in Egypt, 12, and in the parts of Libya, Uh, 13 about Cyrene and strangers of Rome. Who knows how many that is? But the Romans had their own Italiano, did they not? And then Jews and proselytes. So we got about 15 to 16 uh, language uh, dialects going on here. And they're all amazed that these Galileans are speaking to them in their languages. This is a miracle. Okay. That's what we're getting at. Now, let's walk through the book of Acts a little bit more on that and kind of talk it through. Remember, we're dealing with dunamis. Dunamis is a derivative, but it's dunamis. Okay, it's a derivative. So Greek grammar inflects and it inflects for a purpose. But dunamis is our root word, meaning an event that displays a power dynamic that must be understood as outside of the norm. Okay, 
Remember I told you the supernatural could work imperceptibly and it can work slow. It can be a gradual incremental working of the spirit of God in the healing of the body and the healing of the mind and the healing of the soul. It can be a slow work and it is. The supernatural work of your salvation is a slow work. That's why it's called a seed that blossoms fully into glorification. So from seed form to glorification is a whole life of slow supernatural work. Would you agree with that? You have to because it's true. You and I are objects of the supernatural. By the way, in that being the truth, it makes you and I signs. Okay, so this is why I'm saying there is a correlation that you can't really get away from between the supernatural and the manifestation of the supernatural as we mature up into our calling as believers. We are signs too. So it's very important. All right. So what I want us to do is understand, as I stated earlier, the gift of uh, energetic uh, power, the efficacy of power called miracles is showing up in Christ's life, is showing up in the apostles' life, and it's going to show up in the people of God's life in particular, okay? Uh, This is just something that you and I need to know. So I'm going to start, first of all, um, in Acts chapter 4 at another event where supernatural things occur. And this is going to be verse 10, Acts 4.10. This is where you and I saw the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 4. You guys remember that? That was a notable miracle. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you what? That's our word. Our word there whole means healthy. It means cured. It means remedied. You guys keeping up with me? Now, you guys know the event, right? If we go back to the beginning of the chapter, James and Peter are walking through the temple, right? John and Peter are walking through the temple and the layman is sitting there and he's been lame from his mother's womb, right? And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, that which I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and what? walk. And he reached out his hand and that man reached out his hand and he raised him up and he leapt up and started leaping and rejoicing for joy. That was a miracle. Does that make sense? Because that's what the event is all about. It's a miracle. Um, Verse four. Verse four. I didn't want to go through the account, but I'm doing it. uh, Doing it. Verse four. That's Acts four. Verse four, please. Acts four. Verse. How be it many of them... uh, let me see here. Is that what I want to do? Let me make sure I'm looking at that. Verse one. Go back to verse one. I want to make sure. I'm gonna, uh, mm, so it's chapter three. That's chapter three where the event occurs. And now they are having to give an account for it. Let me see here. I just want to make sure. Uh, yes, it's chapter three where the event occurs. Here it is over in verse uh, three and four. Chapter three, verse three. Who seen Peter and John about to go into the temple and ask alms, Peter hastening his eyes upon him with John said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them like money. But Peter, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Before he had not walked, everybody knew he was lame. 
That's what verse 2 says. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which was called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple gate. All right, let's stop and deal with this as a scenario so you won't be lost in me having now to kind of reverse engineer. The context is God has raised up a situation. This is Jesus giving Peter and John an assignment where the Holy Spirit is going to show up to gift them where a need is being met. The need is expressed out loud. Everybody knows this guy is not a hook and crook. He's been lame since he was born. They've been setting him here all his life. Everybody sees this brother. So what's about to happen now is going to be uh, expressed distinctly by the uh, leaders of the church. And I want you to see it because it's going to reaffirm once again, a miracle is designed to produce a what? A sign, a sign to draw people to something for which the sign points to. So this is why it takes place. Laid from his womb uh, at the the gate daily at the temple. So everybody watches him. So we're back to that verse five now, Acts 3, 5. Acts, uh, we, can, we can start there. You're probably smart on that. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received what? Now we're looking at a miracle. Why? Because there is an accelerated activity of the supernatural event of his feeble limb legs being atrophied. He couldn't walk. They were atrophied. Now all of a sudden they're receiving strength. Fully strengthened. This here is, again, our Greek term steros, from which we get the term steroids. Immediately is the word. Remember what I stated? Miracles are going to be accelerated events, not slow processes. Immediately, immediately, his feet and ankle bones receive strength. Verse 8. And he, leaping up, stood, walked, and entered into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. Now he becomes a what? A sign. They're keeping up with me on the pattern. He becomes a sign. People are looking at him. Verse nine, walk it through. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Why? He's a sign. Verse 10. And they knew that it was the one that had set for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. See what I'm getting at? They knew him before. They know him now. This didn't take an operation with a doctor. This was not a month or week or 10, 10 years. This wasn't the regiment of gradually working to build his muscles back, which can be a supernatural thing. We can believe God for that kind of healing with people because he does it frequently. But then he's using means, which we said he does. God frequently uses means. That's why he wants us to be doctors and physicians and chiropractors, et cetera, et cetera, to help the process of healing. But God has to energize that body physiologically so it can heal. You agree with that? All right, good. And so this happened immediately and they knew that it was the one that sat at the gate temple and they were filled with what? That's what you do when you see a miracle. A sign fills you with wonder because it's now messing with your head. What it's doing is crashing your categories. What it's doing is destroying your ability to rationalize what's taking place. That's on purpose. The reason we call a thing a miracle is because we can't explain it. We're trying to organize it. We're trying to structure it. We're trying to define it. We're trying to contain it. It's called rationalizing. We all do it. You can't do it with a miracle. 
It happened too quick. It's too obvious. It's too visible. And it's too alarming. Okay. That's what it's designed to do. Now, I'm, good, I'm going somewhere by this. And they were filled with wonder amazement at that which happened unto him. Now we go to chapter four because the rulers found out about this. And this is a problem for them, of course. Chapter four, verse 10. Notice what it says. And this is what they do. This is the ruler speaking. In fact, let me start back at uh, start back at uh, verse uh, verse eight. No, verse seven, because they raise a question. I have to start at verse six. I'll give you context. And Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, uh, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. They were there. They were meant to be there. I'm looking at verse six, and I'm thinking Matthew chapter twenty-seven. Okay where Caiaphas is examining Jesus and asking him, Do you be the, are, are you the son of God? He says, hereafter shall you see the son of God coming with power and great glory. Here it is right here. See what I'm saying? Hereafter will you see the son of man sitting at the right hand of God and of power. So he doesn't have to be here physically because he sends the power down in the person of the Holy Ghost. And you know he's going to be the subject of conversation because the supernatural Producing a miracle, producing a sign is going to lead to the glory of the sun. That's the whole point here. Here it is. Um, And so they came together, verse 7. And when they had sat them in the midst, they asked, by what, what? There it is. By what power or by what name have you done this? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Now, you know, the third person is present, right? If we this day be examined of the good deed done unto the impotent man by what means he is made whole. That's a salvation phrase. He has been saved in his physical body, has he not? Verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him that this man stand here before you, what? Complete, whole, complete, a miracle happened. A power took place. An energy of power immediately, suddenly changed this man's life. And now he becomes a testimony. Verse 11, I want to walk it through. This is a stone which was set at naught of the builders. He has now become the head of the corner. What is Peter doing? He's preaching the same thing Jesus said to the rulers. You're rejecting Christ. He's still head. Neither is there salvation in any, any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what is Peter doing? The miracle that has occurred becomes a platform for him to preach Christ. It's what he's doing. He knows the purpose of the miracle. The miracle is not to call attention to himself. It's to exalt Christ. Walk up to verse 16, because that's the point I want to make our way. Verse 13. Now, when, Peter, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with what? They actually now are getting a, a description of the supernatural working in the life of the apostles. They see the before and the after, don't they? They see the before and the after. They took notice. They took notice of the boldness of the unlearned men that they have been with Jesus, whom they also called unlearned. Okay? Because he did not go to their school. Verse 14. And beholding the man which was healed, 
That Greek term is important. They are now observing with their physical eye empirically the manifestation of the miracle. And beholding with the beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Isn't that powerful? The brother standing there. He's standing there while the apostles are being examined for this good deed that was done. And Peter is saying, no, we didn't do it. Jesus did it. That's because he's the head of the corner. He's the headstone of the corner. Now, notice what it says in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, so they separated them, right? So they, they saw the miracle. They are interrogating the apostles. They see the lame man heal. Now they want to push them aside because what are they doing? They're struggling. They're wanting to rationalize what happened. If they could actually deny it, they would, would they not? Because this does not fare well for them. Jesus is supposed to be dead. All right, notice, notice what it says. When they had gone out, when they had commanded them to go aside to the council, they conferred among themselves. So they're talking among themselves. Notice what it says, saying, what shall we do to these men? I want you to follow this through because inherent in here is going to be um, the argument for why God allows for signs to occur. What shall we do to these men? See, you know, if they could, they would have censored these men. They would have shadowed and blocked these men. They would have impeded these men from being able to have influence out and abroad, right? That's what they want to try to do now, don't they? Why? Because their message is going to draw people away from them. Here it is. Saying, what shall we do? For that indeed a what? Notable what? There it is. Those are the two words. So our second word miracle is our word dunamis, all right? A notable act of power visibly manifested in an instantaneous healing. The word notable there is the term for everyone knows this to be true, okay? It's our Greek term nostos, gnostos, from which we get our term gnosis, all right? To know, to have an, uh, an empirical or an experiential knowledge of something. Like when everybody knows something in common, we all settle as a public affirmation that this thing happened. Okay, I can run you through many verses where that idea is set forth. In fact, in the book of Acts, the idea of it was made known, it was made known runs many times through the book of Acts. I'm not going to go there, but listen to what he says. A notable miracle has been done by them is, what's the word? Manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Powerful. Benny Hinn, go home. Creflo Dollar, go home. Jack Hagee, go home. All you hustlers, go home. Your cons. You see what I'm getting at? Right. So, you know, not to even beat that dead horse because we beat it many, many years ago. Um, it's one thing for someone to tell you that a miracle occurred. It's another thing for you to see it for yourself. So while you haven't seen it, you have to evaluate the legitimacy of the proposition if it happened by somebody else. That's what you and I are doing now because we have the testimony of it in Scripture. We weren't there. Did that make some sense? We have to evaluate it for ourselves. We will talk about whether or not those things might or can or should occur among us at, at such point. We're not talking about the testimony of scripture. We would be talking about our own testimony. 
Did that make some sense? So I'm pushing you out into the larger discourse around it. Right. Because you and I are safe right now if you are, let's say, a, um, an unsuspecting cessationist. Let's say you hold a position. There are two fundamental arguments in the church. Remember, the church argues about everything. I mean, literally everything, right? The word church they argue about, okay? That's why we got 330 different, 30,000 different denominations because of the word ecclesia, okay? I just want you to get that. So people arguing is just what they do. The point is, is that if you were involved at that time with a notable miracle of that level, being known that broadly, you would have been among those people, too, who would have said, yes, I knew that lame man from his mother's womb. We both went to Shabbat together. We both went to synagogue together. He has been sitting out at that gate forever. He's healed now. See what I'm getting at? A notable miracle has been done. And so notice what they say. And we cannot what? Deny it. If you can deny it, you should. This is fundamental to scientific principles, right? If a thing can be denied, it should. If it can be refuted, it should. Because if it can be denied and refuted successfully, then it cannot be what it alleges to be. Again, I want to put that out to you just for you to think it through. As a Christian, your faith is designed to be under trial as to its authenticity, If it can be proven to be bogus and phony, it should, shouldn't it? All right, I'm just putting it out there. Because there are people who are, who who, who love, let's say, the supernatural and they love miracles and they love all of these very fantastic and and inflamed uh, testimonies of what people have done because it puts you in that realm of George Ory. It puts you in that realm of, you know, uh, lost in space in Twilight Zone. A lot of people love being in that realm. Because once you're in that realm, we can talk about, you know, abductions by aliens and we can talk about shadow ghosts. We can talk about a thousand things. We can talk about all of the ancient pagan demonic gods and stuff like that. And there is a hodgepodge of reality to those distortions, whether you know it or not. Did you hear what I just stated? Because I told you earlier that when we're dealing with power, when we're dealing with dunamis, there's a light side and a dark side. There's a true side and a false side in terms of the manifestation. Did you guys get that? It's important for you to know it's a light side and a dark side. It's important for you to know that. Right. And so over on the dark side, they, they do all kinds of things for people who are ungrounded and uncommitted to the true and the living God, by which they are then brought into all kinds of speculative, theoretical, experiential power dynamics for which in many cases they cannot get out of that labyrinth. It's a labyrinth, okay? And, and it's a real dimension. It's something that we have to talk about on a theological level. So, so what, I, what I try to do with the Christian is say, listen, Christian, when you and I are talking about power, dunamis, we're, not, we're talking about miracles, when we're talking about signs and wonders, please make sure that you're not serving the adversary, Make sure you're not lying about what you're going through, because if you're lying about it, then you're really on the dark side because the dark side is known for lying. The goal of lying is to dislodge, to remove the foundation from under you so that you're not grounded in reality, even at the level of supernatural things. You can still be grounded in reality at the level of the supernatural. Did that make some sense? Right. 
Okay, so I'm just talking logic now. I see you looking with the big old clouds over your head. I'm talking logic principles. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking logic. Logic does not absolutely preclude and exclude miraculous supernatural phenomena. Logic doesn't do that. Logic simply says as far as we can go, let's test it. Did that follow? Did that follow? Right. So logic doesn't say that it's infinite. Logic doesn't even say that it's impeccable. Logic doesn't say that it's indomitable. Pastor, where are you going? I'm saying the tools of logic that God has called us to use are tools that when we use them properly will help keep us in a proximal state of groundedness. But you and I are always dealing with things in the, in the, in the enigma, in the darkness, right? We see through a glass dimly. Did that come home? All right, so I want to press it down a little bit further. Can I do that? Right, because like you have to know that if at best what we're doing when we're dealing with spiritual, supernatural or alleged miracles, which I told you they have to be far and few in between. So I'll help you with this one as a logic principle. When it's a miracle, it's going to be an exception to the rule, not the rule. Because if it was the rule, it wouldn't be a miracle. Did that logic come home? If it was happening every day, everywhere, it wouldn't be a miracle. Oh, man, we have miracles happen every day in our church. No, you don't. You're lying. Nobody has miracles going on every day in their church. Jesus didn't have miracles going on every day in his church. I just read to you guys Mark chapter 6 last week. He says he could not do many mighty works among them because those folk didn't even want to hear it. Am I making some sense? So I'm saying this, the thing that God never wants you and I to do as much as we are exploring supernatural gifts is to lose our mind. You have to be grounded in your thinking capacity, your reasoning capacities, your discernment capacity, your intuitive capacities. You have to be grounded. So to the degree that we can actually anchor these truth claims in the uh, principles of scripture, they can keep you when you go deep sea diving beyond your capacity to rationale. Now, rationale is the term means to ration. Whenever you do rationale, you are simply taking bits and pieces of ideas and organizing them enough for you to try to have an understanding. Raise your hand if that made some sense. Every day we do that because let's I'm pressing this home for a second, uh, for a reason. Can I, every truth claim that you and I would investigate as a principle can be so deep and so broad that it would never, you and I could never plumb its depths. So all you and I need to do with any truth claim is make sure we're getting the fundamentals of that truth in a way in which we can organize it so that we can be grounded and so that we can communicate the essence of that truth claim consistently, coherently, and biblically. That makes sense, right? We are not saying that we plumb the depths on any precept of truth because we don't see that clearly. But we do see enough to be able to tell the truth as it is in Jesus and be able to stand on God's word until correction comes. Ah, that's the other principle. Because if you and I saw clearly, we would never have to be corrected. But because we don't see clearly, we are open to correction. 
Correction is necessary for clarity. Right? That makes sense. It is, all right, so good. Um, this is what they affirmed, and this was really critical about this particular miracle. As you and I are talking about miracles, it's extremely important for us to get. <clears throat> Another uh, portion of scripture that you and I want to look at in relationship to this to kind of make this uh, walk all the way home. This would be Acts chapter, um, give me Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Let me briefly talk about this because I made an observation about the, the people who actually have the gifts. Uh, one of the things I will state is that not every one of the Christians throughout the book of Acts had the gift of miracles. But Stephen did and Philip did. So notice what it says about the two deacons. And here's the first one. And Stephen was what? Full of faith. And what? There's your word. There's your word. The capacity for doing miracles. And we know that, don't we? We know that. Now watch this. And Stephen, full of faith and power, he did great wonders and what? Among the what? And all he was was a deacon. But he was a special deacon because not all deacons did that. Okay, so we thank God for Stephen because he was once again full of what? And, and I would I would actually attribute this to the gift of faith we talked about in First Corinthians chapter 10, 12, verse nine. He was so full of faith. It capacitated him the ability to be used by God to actually engage in miracles. Right. You can see how counterproductive it could be if your faith was diminished at a moment in which God was giving you an assignment to do something that would take on the supernatural or the miraculous. Wouldn't you need a fullness of faith? Right. Of course. So I thank God for Stephen, full of faith, power. He did great wonders and miracles among the people. This is remarkable because you and I don't have uh, any legitimate sort of examples running through other than the fact that he becomes the first martyr of the New Testament church. And that shows us that he did those things because he was advancing the cause of Christ in such a way that they had to kill him like they killed Jesus. See what I'm getting at? The two beasts, the the two beasts coming up, the beast coming up out of the bottomless pit will kill you if you're working effectually for Christ. That needs to be understood as an axiom. Okay, so um, uh, another verse to look at as we are making our way through the uh, book of Acts is... Uh, Chapter eight, verse 10, chapter eight, verse 10. These are events that are happening. Um, You can start back at verse eight. This is the time where there that Philip is in the city of um, uh, Samaria. And there was great joy in that city in Samaria because the gospel was being preached. Verse nine. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery. There you go. You got the dark side and the light side. Y'all got that? He used sorcery. Now, 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 now Philip is preaching to them the truth of the gospel. They're engaging in real manifestations of power. And here comes the sorcerer. Okay, Uh, Simon, the sorcerer, which before time in the same city, used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, Samaria, not uh, yeah, Samaria is the city, giving out that he was some great one. We've talked about this one many times. Have we not? He would serve as your false prophet, would he not? All right, go back for a second, sis. I'll just do this for my new people here. 
All of you guys who are old, uh, older with me, you already know this is the paradigm of an antichrist or a false prophet teacher. A false prophet teacher will claim power that he doesn't have. If he does have it, it's dark power. And then the false prophet teacher will steal glory for himself because he's stealing glory for himself because he wants the accolades and the benefits that come. Over against the true prophets, they don't ever take God's glory. Peter, James, and John had said, hey, in so far as this miracle is concerned, we had nothing to do with it. It was Jesus of Nazareth in his name and by his authority and by his power is his man whole. Over here, Simon, hey, I can heal you. Y'all see what I'm getting at? Now people are focused on men instead of on God. All right, so it's very important for you and I to see the two categories if you guys are keeping up. Um, verse 10, verse 10. To whom they gave, they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying this, it, this man is the great what? Power of God. Uh, Louis, can you see why the AC switched? Because I had it on 69 warm. I don't know why it switched on there. I want to make sure that we don't get cold. So, so notice what it says. To whom they all did what? They all gave heed to him. They weren't pointing to Christ. They all gave heed to him. You may just need to crank it up a little bit because we're in our legitimately, we are in our uh, fall, winter season. To whom they all gave heed from least to grace, saying, this man is the great what? Right, that's blasphemy. Isn't it blasphemy? Right. But you can see how when you take these categories that should be dis distinguished and um, individuated, God, power with God, the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, the gifts, they need to be distinguished. You can collapse them all down and squeeze them into an indistinguishable unit and apply them to a person. Now, all of a sudden, that person is the great power of God. You guys understand we've been dealing with cults like this forever even to today, even to today. This is, so I just put this out for you because something really has been happening really bizarre in our, our nation over the last seven or eight years. So I'm gonna toss it out as a kind of parenthetical and we'll come back. So what's going on on a larger global level is preparation for a kind of global control over all people. You guys know that in one world government, we know this. All right, we can argue all we want to. That's the case. The goal is management and control of all of the people groups on the planet. So the, the nations are warring and fighting in order to ultimately come together. This is your Hegel's dialectical process, thesis, antithesis, until we come into a synthesis, right? And so this is all something that began more demonstratively under the United Nations. I want you to get that. The United Nations is your fundamental lever for driving the nations who were constantly at war together under the same roof to begin to govern the masses of people. Does that make sense? The methodology or protocol that they're going to use to get us there will always be war. War on the part of power is the way you control the masses of the people. Because the masses of the people in war are always then inclined to show allegiance to their country. So you can manip manipulate them on a propaganda level and get them engaged in the stupidity of going to war. And the attrition rate of war is all about killing body masses so that you have less people to have to feed and less people you have to govern. 
Did that come home? You drive the people into a kind of irrational, ungodly patriotism to where they go out into the theater of war and be willing to lay down their life for a cause that they never substantiated fully, legitimately and properly as our society should be doing in a free country that operates out of a representative republic. If you're going to take my son or my daughter and put them in harm's way, shouldn't they at least know that the war is legitimate and is not rooted in propaganda and a lie in order to gain money by some material acquisition, whether it's oil or other resources. You've killed my child in order to enrich yourself while at the same time impoverishing the very nation you're ruling over. Am I making some sense? I just wanted to put that out there because it's important for you and I to know when you read your Bible, it's telling you the God honest truth about this stuff. When the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding, I told you about them, the gospel, war, economics, famine, and death. These are the cyclical patterns of government around the world at all times. Their job is to manipulate those horses in a way in which they can confiscate the wealth, minimize the uh, body politic of people, and then control them efficiently enough for the people not to feel like they can rise up and stop their government. Does that make some sense? Like, and you wouldn't even be questioning me if you, if you knew world history. If you knew world history, you would know what I'm saying is true. Okay, so I, I don't know where I was at today. Some, oh, okay, I was in Santa Barbara, me and my wife celebrating her birthday. And I was either talking to somebody or working on some material around um, the four horsemen. of the. Oh, I'm working on a Reformation, uh, Reformation history for a class I got to do tomorrow. And the Reformation uh, with, with Martin Luther and, 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 and John Huss and, and Wycliffe and, and, and all of those guys, uh, John Knox, uh, Calvin, all of those guys were part of the, the, the chess game that you guys play all the time with your queen and your kings and your bishops and your rooks. That's all a play of power at the two beast level, the beast, secular beast and the religious beast. So y'all following what I'm saying? Right. The secular beast and the religious beast. And when you bring the religious beast and the secular beast together, then they will make war against the lamb. That's Revelation 17, 14. But I was thinking through how that the Reformation was uh, employed by God to break up the unifying power of the throne of the king and the priesthood of the church, because those things were starting to happen where they were creating allegiances, the Roman Catholic Church, along with the, uh, the Roman uh, uh, leaders, whether they be Charlemagne or whether they be who, whomever at the time, they, they come together and now you have a duet of powers, religious and secular, dominating the people. So what had to happen in terms of Catholicism, we could talk about uh, Greek Orthodoxy, we could talk about other religions, but under Catholicism, which was the dominant, Take it all the way and go back to Constantine. Under Constantine, where he brought great favor in the fifth century around allowing Christians to be free of persecutions and therefore Christianizing a significant portion of the Roman Empire. By the time we get to the first millennium under Charlemagne, the king and the uh, and the pope worked together. This is what we what we saw as the Roman Catholic Church 
the Roman Empire and the Catholic Church now are the two heads of this two-headed beast dominating the people group and wanting to bring everybody under the auspices of the gospel. This is where Christians at the ground level started opposing both the throne and the uh, and the church. They started opposing it. Why? Because it was top heavy with tyranny. And over time, what was happening was the church was sanctioning the throne to persecute people in the name of Jesus. Right. And people on the ground were saying, no, this is not right. And so what did God do from the first millennium to about 1300 uh, A.D.? He started giving Christians movements on the ground to break away from the Catholic Church and start having their own communions. You guys know that. And those people were operating out of a uh, what we would call a, a um, imperative of freedom, an imperative of freedom. And eventually you have what is called the Reformation period. So the Reformation period is in the 14th, 15th century. The Reformation was the move of the bishop on the chessboard to make a left because, you know, your bishops run L-shape, right? Richard, talk to me. Okay. That's your bishops. Knights. Oh, bishop. Uh, oh, oh, that's the bishop is protecting. Now I want, I'm taking the knight then because the knight at this point here is a, is a, is a uh, German monk who dares challenges the throne, dares challenges the papacy. And that's Martin Luther. Y'all got that? He started an, an assault on a major pillar of the two beasts. And because of what he did, it attracted secular leaders into the movement. See, people want to be free. And so the next thing you know, oh, you got people actually speaking up against a lot of the crazy stuff going on in the church. Remember, the church was hoodwinking people, getting back to mysticism and dark powers and magic and witchcraft. All of that was in the church. So Luther is being used as a sword to wedge the powers of the church and free people. And now people are coming together in their own smaller communes and challenging the church. And the church starts gradually crumbling. And the next thing you know, it's the power was broken up. And now you have what is called the Reformation. Okay. And many people follow to boot. I only say that to say that you and I are living in a post-Reformation age. You and I are living in a post-Reformation age. If the Reformation, and it was the 15th century, uh, 1483, Luther was born. Around 1463, 1563, he died. The Reformation started in, in, in 1517 officially, and the Reformation continued all the way into the Americas because the Christians that came here were, were pilgrims and Puritans. And they were coming from the tyranny of King George in, in, in England because they were continually, whether, whether it was under what was called Roman Catholicism in, in Rome and in Italy, or whether it was under the state-sanctioned church, the English church in Europe, which is what happened to John Bunyan when he was put in prison and many others, because they were preaching the word of God, people had to flee. This is your Exodus motif. Y'all getting what I'm saying, right? And America was called the New World. Did you know that? America was called the New World. So we had a period of what was called the New World Order here in America in the 14th, 15th century. 
So you and I are now in the 21st century, 600 years, let's say 500 to, to keep the margins. We've had 500 years of the new world order, and that is a biblical worldview, a Judeo-Christian framework of governance. We have exceeded that period, have we not? Right. I, I know we're just talking. We don't, we're not scholars of history or anything, but you guys aren't ignorant. And of course, you know, we've talked about this many times. I only state this is for you to have a real sense of where we are and where we're going. Where we are and where we're going. Are we going to see another reformation? Or are we going to go into another level of the dark ages unseen before, given where we are technologically? Does that make some sense? It's really worth having that conversation in terms of how things will play out going forward. You definitely need to have a very healthy and robust eschatology. We've talked about that before. Your eschatology cannot be blinders. But you also have to have a really good sense of how history works and have a really good handle on what the dynamics and mechanisms of politics are about. Because politics and religion is already starting to come together at the highest levels of the infrastructure of the, the, the new New World Order system. OK, it's starting to come together in that regard, too. And, and probably one of the reasons why this is germane, as I close it down, is that if you and I are talking about miracles, and we are, we're talking about the dynamic of power bursting out and doing something on a phenomenal level that, that becomes obvious to our eyes, right? Is that what we're talking about? Of course. And we're talking about something that doesn't happen a lot. Isn't that what we're talking about? Right. And I told you this last time, so I'm going to close on this and we're going to Q&A. Um, if people are prepared today by propaganda, by distortion, by misinformation, by not being rooted and grounded in truth, by being much more emotionally centered than intellectually and rationally and propositionally centered, by being driven much more by sort of sociological factors, if their lens of perception is not rooted in true, is it probable that the masses of people that you and I are engaging in today are precisely set up for strong delusions coming through the dark powers and systems that are already set up? At the technological level, at the scientific level, at the artificial intelligence level, at the, again, Hollywood entertainment level as they all work uh, in cahoots to bring about a great false vision. Y'all following what I'm saying? So one of the reasons why I'm glad we're having the conversation around miracles and I'm drilling down into it is because what happened 50 years ago, and, and I'll stop here. Can I get somebody to run the mic if you have any questions? What happened 50 years ago, I need a young person, you can, you can run, Ronaldo. Um, what happened 50 years ago in America, and I want to probably say 60, yeah, he can, he can help too, is that the church uh, became shallow. The church became shallow? The church became shallow 50, 60 years ago. I just want you to hear this and I'm going to shut it down. The church became shallow and didn't take the word of God serious enough to use it as a legitimate critique in prism for the BS that was going on in both the church and the world at the time. The church didn't have the capacity to discern what was going on politically and socially. 
so it had very little to say about it. And the church couldn't pick up on the invasion in the church of New Age mysticism and paganism and witchcraft and demonism. Do you hear me? And because of their failure to actually hold a robust, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-based understanding of the world, they were easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning slate of men from the secular systems to the sacred systems. Every ism you can imagine snuck in like a serpent to come both into the secular educational system, political system, business sectors, as well as into our religious communities. And therefore, our religious communities demonstrated that they were not seers. They could not see. They could not see. Hence, we are where we are today. So we were playing, we were playing Disneyland religiously. We were praying, playing uh, uh, Vanity Fair, as John Bunyan would put it, where people were engaging in, in the name of Jesus, getting wealthy and prosperous and making money and enjoying life. And we're going to create our own theme parks in Jesus' name. All of that old superficial vanity. Did that make some sense? And Christians jumped on it like, you know, I don't know what. And still haven't recovered from it yet. So, so for me, one of the things I'm working through um, mentally as I observe the Christian world out there and what I'm observing mostly, you guys, is silence. I'm talking about the bigger, more responsible senior pastors across our nation and our world that I would look to to actually be able to talk in depth about these issues that we're going through now. Silence. Silence. And I'm going, whoa. I mean, what all this talk you were doing back in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and you don't have anything to say now. And I think we're on the brink of a massive explosion of deception. Like we have never, ever seen before. All right, let's do some q and I'll run you out of here. Who has, the, who has the mic? Ladies first. Okay, so if we're on a massive explosion of deception. Potentially. Potentially. Yep. We know that Stephen was able to host miracles in the name of Jesus for Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Miracles to point his power, his glory, his, his love. How... Can we, as Grace Bible Church, be praying to be um, discerning and um, wise and open for the Holy Spirit and um, God to move us and use us um, so that we don't fall captive of this? Um, Pray those very things. Um, what you have to do also, predicating prayer is always going to be prophecy. Prophecy is going to predicate prayer. Talking about these things, explaining these things, predicate prayer. You don't pray in a vacuum. So the fact that we're talking these things through and working these things through and explaining these things, what we would want God to do is give us a burden, a continued burden for our culture and our world so that we can be prepared to deal with it if in the event it is God's will that we go through this next storm, okay? Because see, the book of Acts 
is an event that Jesus told the apostles they would go through. So as they went through the book of Acts, what they never thought was somehow the political powers of the world were going to love them. They never thought that. They never thought that the political powers of the world were going to love them, were going to hear them, were going to exalt them or honor them. None of that. Jesus did not tell them they would be able to build mansions in the sky. It wasn't, wasn't going to happen. So what was going on for them is they understood that no matter how difficult the scenario, they were simply looking for opportunities to preach the word and that the third person was there to affirm the authenticity of the crown rights of Christ in the process. What they had then that I'm not sure we have now, and I'll take our next question, is the mandate to go into all the world with the gospel. Because the gospel hadn't gone. Okay? This is why I stated that we are in a post-Christian era, a post-Reformation era. Unless God otherwise shows us, it may be very possible that we won't see another Reformation. That doesn't mean Christians won't be around. It just means that it won't be the kind of uh, uh, permeating of biblical truth in society where they take up biblical laws and biblical uh, ethics and biblical protocol. What it probably will mean is that Christians will be for a long period of time in the minority and whatever that would look like. So we would have to be ready for that too, wouldn't we? Who, who, any of the other ladies, any other ladies, my sister right here. Okay, PJ, um, I want to see if I did understand the lesson tonight. So manifestation of power, it can manifest itself on the light side or on the dark side. And now we can tell through discernment, like which side we're on when it comes to terms of, in terms of power. And then according to Acts, you shared, then there came a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house. So we can now tell we have the light side of power because of the manifestation of the dead person. The Holy Spirit, is that accurate? Um, what happened in Pentecost was a one-time event of the landing of the third person. It's a metaphor, right? The Holy Spirit is not literally coming down because he's not limited. So we're dealing with a metaphor of the heavens opening up and ushering in the presence of God in the ministry of the third person, working in community to create a body of believers who become the co-extension of Jesus, right? So that's what the church is supposed to be, the co-extension of Christ. That makes sense, right? So we're not having the Holy Ghost come down and empowering people with tongues. That's not a repeated event. A lot of people talk like Pentecost is a repeated event. That was a one-time event. In, 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 the, in the optimistic sense, the spirit of God is still here. But his being here is dependent upon the assignment that Christ gives us through him as to where we are ministering, how broadly, deeply, how long in any part of the world, right? And where we are now, we're asking the question when we look around the world in terms of the efficacy and relevance of the church. And we have to really ask ourselves the question, what's going on? Because we know times where the church was relevant in the world, impacting politics, impacting leaders, transfer, transforming societies. We're not seeing that today. So we have to ask, what is that about? Is that about a need for the church to become so decimated that it goes back to its knees? Remember, what we do have in Pentecost 
at Pentecost Acts 2 is a description, but we also has as an application there a prescription, right? You have not because you what? Right, so I'm saying we can look at Acts 2, Acts 1 and 2 and go, maybe we need to be asking more sincerely. I've talked about that before. And, and this is all I want to say about that now. So, okay. I want to just say this part now mm-hmm. about it, because a lot of people have always wanted Acts 2 to happen over and over and over again. And you're denied this. I told you 330,000 Christian denominations. OK, so um, the Holy Ghost doesn't repeat Pentecost every year. Folks like having Holy Ghost revivals. Phony. Do you hear what I just stated? Phony fake church. It ain't nothing but entertainment. Nobody's getting saved. It's it's a fraud. It's a scam. I mean, you can see through that if you're just an honest, unsaved person. You can see through it. Right. Like you can't force God. You can't say, God, on this day, you got to come down. We're going to have a Holy Ghost meeting on, you know, October 30, you know, 23rd, all the way to 29th. And the Holy Ghost going to show up. You have that much power on the Holy Ghost? Okay, so it doesn't happen. It's foolishness, it's trichanery. Yeah. And, and I get why. But I want to tie that with when I come back to Psalms 23, now when I read that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not lack. And then he makes me lie down in green pastures. And even if I go through that valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear anything because his rod and stuff comforts me. So is that the supernatural or is that... Of course that's supernatural. You're talking about the governance of Christ over all of our lives individually. That's not a collective there. Psalm 23 is a beautiful testimony of one sheep trusting in his great shepherd, leading him through this life to the promise of glory. And we all have that, right? Whether we are on the mountaintop or in the valley, right? Or even in the midst of the sea is one of the songs I have. Um, whether we're in the midst of the sea, the Lord is still with us, right? Every believer can own that. I am talking to us right now on the corporate level because the corporate level is a relevant level as well, as you guys know. If the church is completely irrelevant today, then everybody's operating in a kind of isolated, individuated, kind of personal, hopeful mode. And uh, I can tell you it would, be go- it would go better with us as a group than it will for you to operate as one person. I can tell you that now. You don't have the model in the scriptures that he sent them out one by one. You never saw that. Anyhow, uh, I want to make sure I'm done with my ladies. Our ladies are good. We're all good. Okay, Jashana. Okay, I was writing it out so I could be succinct. So be patient, okay, because I was in the middle. (laughs) Okay, Um, as we go through the world, particularly in light of your... Um, sermon on the serpents, right? Um, you said some people were able to go through the wilderness and not be bitten. Isn't that amazing? It is. Some of them negotiated around being attacked because they did not lose their discipline and focus on where they were. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? We're right up on the blessing. We're right up on the blessing. They were right up on the blessing. That's a conversation. That's all I'm saying. Not everybody was bidden. 
So we got to look at the ones who were bitten and we know why they were complaining. They missed the point. They went horizontal instead of vertical and they, you know, they had to suffer more. But those folks that navigated that, we have a lot to learn from them, don't we? Because we live in a world full of snakes. Go ahead on. Correct. So at the end of that point, you just said we're navigating in a world full of snakes. And one of those snakes, at least from my analysis, is the snake of, quote, tolerance. Um, Being tolerant is really just um, a way, uh, and many times it's a way to censor, for you not to speak uh, truth or call out things the way they are. And I was looking at that in particular, I think in Isaiah 59, that was one of the judgments early on that the Lord gave is that truth is not called out, right? And so... Um, Agreed. For those of us who are trying to deal in reality, reality as far as truth according to the Lord, and speak clearly, um, the allegations often against us is we're intolerant, unkind, mean, not gentle. And in the world, you know, we may can be a little bit more bold or, you know, whatnot to stand up against that. At least that's been my experience. But when that allegation comes from a brother or a sister in the church, it's more difficult to navigate that um, to make sure that we're not being legalistic or to make sure that, you know, our conscience is right before the Lord. And so um, what would be your counsel to help us navigate that snake in the church? Right. You want to work with Ephesians 4 as well as Colossians 3. You're going to always be working um, Ephesians 4. You're going to be dealing with the need to speak the truth in love. Right. And that's going to be negotiating truth proposition at the right time in the right way with the right motive. That's you're going to always be dealing with that. So around that particular imperative in Ephesians chapter four, around verse 15 or 16 is the fact that you're dealing with children. Right. So the church is not a bunch of grown believers. Um, The church is at best uh, babies, um, immature um, uh, weak, um, undiscerning, you know, you got all that in any community as you would in any family, right? It's just really true. So everybody's not mature. If you think you are and you're not, you're really not mature. So the, the point being is that if you're dealing with a community with all of these diverse attributes and characteristics, the believer is always to occupy a position of non-compromising truth, but in the context of love, so that you are not unduly offending. We've already been through that a thousand times. You don't get to offend people with your truth carelessly. You just don't get to do that. So when you say something or communicate to someone in a way in which it disrupts them, you really want to have a conversation with them if you can. This is your second conversation. Excuse me, I did not mean to offend you. But what is it that you are offended about? You see what I'm getting at? You got to have that conversation. You don't get to just turn into the Hatfields and the McCoys because that means there's a bunch of snakes in the room. 
right? Because again, I, I quoted Galatians chapter five, verse 15, right? If you bite and devour one another. So, you know, the goal is to make sure when you're dealing with Christians and we could, we could generalize this across the whole Christian community. You guys know that. For those of you who've been around me for many, many years, you know, I've been guilty of uh, he's too harsh. He's he's too strong. I don't like his tone and all of that kind of stuff. That's been going on forever. I totally get it. I'm waiting on God to grace me to be better. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to keep telling the truth as it is in Christ. Right. And 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 understand that there are going to be um, there are going to be differences of opinions. Now, when we're called to dwell together. We just learn to live together, just like you got to live with your kids and live with your sister and live with your uncle and live with your aunt, and live with your mom and live with your daddy. We're called to live. Jesus made that very plain. He told us to love one another, even as he has loved us. So we don't get to just throw each other off. This is also an adjacent to what I meant by you never see Jesus sending one out by himself. So what we're often easy inclined to do is not only get mad when people don't say things the way we want them to say them, but then we're quick to push them off and want to take a position of isolation and be all by ourselves. Did that make some sense? It really is true. And our world is set up where a person can have a silo, their own individual little paradiso, and just be stuck in the metaverse of their own delusional, isolated world uh, synthetically through artificial intelligence. You ain't got to ever talk to a real human being again. You can order your food. You can work from home. Am I making some sense? Of course I am. And so you want to be careful that you and I don't become partakers of the dark side and dispense with the organic, as difficult as the organic may be, for the synthetic, as convenient as the synthetic may be. Because there are a lot of people watch me online, never come in, inside the doors of the church because they don't want to deal with the difficulty of the organic. The organic is difficult. Am I making some sense? Right. So we want to we strike the balance. Um, you know, we got all kinds of believers and on any given day, we can be any one of those all kinds of believers ourselves. And that's why Colossians chapter three will tell you, hey, you know, uh, put on as the elect of God, bowels of mercy, tender mercies and kindnesses and gentleness. You can start at verse 12 and forgive one another for bearing one another in love and forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. So that mechanism of forgiveness is the way that we reconcile offenses so we can keep working in the same community. We may have to go from three inches of separation to six inches or nine, but at least we're not leaving each other's presence. Did that make some sense? Some t- and I've talked to us about pacing and spacing in a relationship paradigm, and this is true in marriage as it is in relationships with believers. If a believer is pushing you because they want to control you, create space. If they want to dominate the pace, then you create space. Did that make some sense? Right. And space is all that. All you're saying in space is, no, I'm not going to let you dominate the pace. That pace has to be 
a mutual collaborative between you and me where I'm comfortable with you as you would be with me because I'm, I have to actually take care of my own self as well, right? And so we have to learn how to do that with each other. So sometimes, you know, you're going to look out where people are sitting, one person in one chair and another person in the next chair. The next week is going to be one person at the one end of the row and another person at the other end of the row. I mean, it's, it's going <laughs> It's going to be that way, but we're still in the same community. That's a mature believer. There's all kind of dynamics there, but I hope that makes sense. Who was raising that observation? Was that you, Leah? I mean, uh, uh, Jashana? Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Are you done? Yeah, I hope that makes sense. We got a lot of work to do, but remember, snakes are always in the church. They started in Genesis 3, made their way to Job chapter 1, ended up in 1 Samuel chapter 21, then showed up in Matthew chapter 4, hung out throughout all of the Gospels, and the next thing you know, they showed up in the book of Revelation, right? The snakes are always in the church. Our job is just to try not to be one. Who has the mic? Answer a few more and get out of here. Pastor, I'm going to ask a question. I mean, uh, uh, Barry was raising his hand way over. So uh, if somebody got a mic, then they're not... Oh, but you got to raise it up because, okay, go on, go on, uh, go on, James, because I was waiting for my brothers. I think my sisters are done. Go to, okay. Uh-huh. Because, yeah, I've been working through the, uh, what should I call it, the, uh, the Middle East situation, I'm trying to work through that. And for the life of me, I just, I, I mean, I just can't f- figure it out. I mean, well, let me start with this. I've been combing the, uh, the media reports yes. on what's going on there and how they're presenting it. And it's just like, I think today was the very first time I saw one that actually distanced Hamas from the Palestinian people. I agree. And it's like, you know, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what I've been looking at. It's like, how can a people that just came out of the Holocaust then turn around and almost inflict the same? Equally. And in some ways worse. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. Well, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, and all I'm hearing is pro-Israel. And then when I was looking at the videos, I can sort of understand when people are not supporting Hamas. But it, what I saw today was that Hamas made a, the reporter made a clear distinction between Hamas is they, they're terrorizing everybody, you know. Palestinians, Israel, it doesn't matter. You know, so why do we only get just one side, you know, of the story like Israel is this and Palestinians is this? Well, most of the Palestinians are the ones that's just being, use a better word, just, just been defecated on. It's just like, that just doesn't make any uh, sense to me. So when I, I, I look at that and then put it together with, we have to be dispensers of truth. We got to go tell the truth to people, which they're steadily trying to silence us from doing it because that's their last stand. If they can shut us up about the truth, then they can just have their way. I believe that's the only thing that's keeping the dark side from totally taking over because I don't believe that they're, of course they have a foothold, but they don't have, as long as we have God on our side, I think we, we, we still we, we have more than a fighting chance, but we have to be obedient to the things we've heard and what we've seen and put them in 
and put them in action, just like the scripture you just put up on the board. We just can't be devouring one another, but we have to tell them the truth and love. We, we have to utilize all these things. Because a lot of people, like I said, the Christian church, what was that saying? We're a, a mile wide and an inch deep. I mean, we're sh- you said shallow. You brought that up earlier. And that just concerns me in what we're, what we're, what we're faced with right now. I mean, we have, like what you just said earlier, some of the people that we've been talking years ago and they're silent now, the people that you're looking for, I guess they would be your upline. I guess that's the uh, people that's been talking for 60, 70 years. I don't know who you're referring to. I, I, have, I have a lot of names. I didn't want to bring no, them no, up tonight. No, no, I don't want I, you eventually, to. I do. Okay. Eventually, I do when this becomes a little bit more formidable. But let me, can I organize some of those thoughts you're sharing? Please. And so we can get to our next guy. And, and because I, I totally understand. We're, this is a repeat. Um, the uh, Jewish battle with the uh, Palestinians is a repeat of a dialectical process. You guys have gone through this many, many times. We dealt with that. We deal with that in politics, left, right narrative, right? Republicans and Democrats. If you listen to the Republicans only, the Democrats are bad. And they will give you a great argument against the Democrats. You listen to the Democrats, the Republicans are just a bunch of greedy, uh, wealth-mongering people that, that, you know, don't care about throwing babies under the bus and killing and running over grannies, right? Those two extremes is what I put up on the board last week when I had the opposition of one side or another, and then I bent it, I arced it, I arced it, so that those two don't see each other. So when they shoot their arrows, they shoot their arrows that way, their propositional arrows, and they don't get a chance to dialogue because they're too far on the extreme. So when you meet anyone on the extreme left, they are so um, given to the narrative of the left that it's almost impenetrable in terms of reasoning with them and discoursing with them about what we would know to be concrete facts, okay? The same thing with the Republicans to some degree. So here's what I'm going to say as I squeeze it back over to the Palestinians and the Jews. When we overgeneralize those characters, uh, those, uh, those, those, uh, those parties, when you overgeneralize those parties, which is media, which is propaganda, when you overgeneralize them, you fail to understand the real um, complexity of those people groups. If you overgeneralize the Palestinians and make them one with Hamas, then, well, yeah, kill them all. However, as a Christian, you don't even get to kill Hamas because now you're violating Torah. You're, you're violating the protocol of a judicious examination to determine the legitimate personal guilt of individuals uh, that are necessary for justice to prevail. And they've already talked about collective judgment. And collective judgment is bypassing the process of hunting down the actual killers. Now, you don't want that to start happening in America. Because if that starts happening in America, it's over with. And if we say, yeah, to Israel doing it to the Palestinians, please know it's coming here next. And we're stupid and dumb as Americans because we did it to black people. It's, It's remarkable. Black people were collectively punished for 150 years. Then our Jewish brethren, as you stated, were collectively punished for seven to 10 years during that whole pogrom. And many other ethnic groups have gone through the same kind of genocidal insanity because of power dynamics. 
any Christian succumbing then to the dialectical process of Hegel's left-right narrative without taking into consideration the biblical idea that God is no respecter of persons, one. Secondly, every individual matters, too, and therefore we don't want to fall prey to a, a Marxist sort of collective communal righteousness judgment paradigm. Because once you do that, you can destroy people you know, in whole groups before you discover that you were exercising a uh, unrighteous sort of holocaustic judgment, right? But you see how we're on the brink of doing it again? We're on the brink of doing it again because we're sinful people. We are sinful people. And evil is in our heart and the capacity to do harm is in our heart. And when you and I are not checked by the spirit of God to bring about fear and trembling in our soul to keep us back from turning human beings into dogs, which both the Jews and the Palestinians are doing that to each other. They're calling each other dogs, snakes, less than human, demons. And you guys hear all of this terminology on the Internet. When you hear about like the lizard people and all of that. All of that is degrading you down to dehumanizing individuals. This is getting again over into that, that weird world of folks thinking they know something about what's going on in the realm of artificial intelligence. So I'm saying to you and I, to be a grounded Christian is to see the world through the eyes of God and understand that every individual person has a right to a fair trial. It doesn't matter how bad the crime was. You don't get to just rush him and his family out and put them on trees and, and, and kill them and then burn them up like they used to do. This is, see, what happens when these kind of things occur, you guys? We're losing our mind, and this is when God is taking his hand off of us because the law is slack. And that's what's happening with, that, with all that. So you and I need to be very careful not to, I mean, you can go through the exercise. I, I'm going to encourage you to go through the exercise. Go through the exercise of listening to the right. When they wax eloquent, we got to protect Israel. We got to protect America. We got to protect our interests. They've been giving us that BS for like 100 years while we've been going around the world, destroying all kinds, plundering lands and resources exponentially. You guys understand that? Right. To the destruction of people groups. It would break your heart. It really would look like, in my opinion, Watch, watching an abortion. Have you seen one? You've never seen, you've never seen an abortion. So yeah, because you haven't seen one, you don't have that visceral feeling of falling apart internally at the destruction of a life. Am I making some sense? Right, so because we haven't seen the barbaric practice of sticking this long rod up the womb of a woman and crushing the skull and sucking out the brains and watching that child shiver and shake and, and opine, then we're, we're deluded, aren't we? We're utterly deluded in thinking abortions are, um, you know, optional things to do because you got pregnant and you don't want to inconvenience yourself. You see why? Also, so thank you for that. We will finish in five minutes here. You see why we have to see evil? Do you see why you got to see evil? Because you, you won't want it to stop until you see it. 
You won't want it to stop until. So like America lives in a kind of, again, a paradise, a Hollywood scenario assumption of what the world is like. War is ugly. It's insane. It's it's maddening. You, you wonder why boys have PTSD when they come back. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they want to drink? Why wouldn't they want to do drugs? Why wouldn't they want to numb themselves? Why wouldn't they want to completely, you know, check out after they've been asked? And we have military vets in our community. I talk to them and they don't even want to talk about what they went through. So see what we have in America are a whole bunch of Americans who are neither sober or serious about life. Because if we really were, we would actually be participating more rigorously in our constitutional rights and being partakers of our local political governance so that it wouldn't be captivated by the money-grubbing monsters way at the top. Because of the, the, the space of separation between them and us is so astronomical that they can stay high and distorted and delusional as they make uh, plans and engage in enterprises that wipe out whole people groups and they never see it with their own naked eye. See what I'm getting at? These are the same fools running our world right now. Same fools running our world right now telling you to take something that they won't take. Right, so they have to come down. They have to come down. And uh, partly we can wait for God to do it. But I tell you, you know, you have a history book. It tells you what you and I should be doing to participate with him in bringing it down. And uh, otherwise, what we get to do is we get to watch it happen as we're watching it happen in our lifetime. You guys, you and I are watching what our society looks like when it abandons God, abandons his word, and we go into propaganda for decade upon decade upon decade and put in paper tiger men and women into politics who love gain and money. This is why we're going to be talking about Balaam here in a moment. Then they do righteousness. That's what we're looking at. So we're coming up at the end of that sand clock. And it's getting ready to turn into a nightmare. So the American dream is about to become the American nightmare. Pray for your Palestinian brothers and sisters. Because what they are, are Arabs, they are Jews, they are Gentiles, they are Christians, they are Muslims, they are atheists, they're agnostic, they're the total collective Did y'all hear what I just stated? And 20% of them live in Israel under a a tier of apartheid. We know this is true. So you never hear this in the media. So there is definitely something going on at the higher level of spiritual controls that is limiting the media from telling the truth that it used to do 40, 50 years ago. There's definitely something going on. And your canaries in the coal mine that you guys have been hearing year after year after year for the 10, 20 years, warning you about the structures that be who get shut down. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They've been warning us and they get shut down. They get they get psyoped by the CIA and they go crazy and lose their mind because we can turn you into we can make you look like the most brilliant person on the planet. 
and you can be our president and you're just one step away from the loony house and we can make you look like a brilliant general, military strategist and philanthropic lover of humanity. Can we not do it? And it's nothing but signs and wonders and lies that I'm talking about, the magic. Manturian candidates. We've been doing that for the longest because human beings are not thinking things through. We're not, we're not critiquing it deeply enough to realize, wait a minute, there's a, there's a charade going on here. These people are controlled. The narrative is controlled. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It's very important for you, for you not. So on this one, on the Palestinian Jewish thing, don't take sides, side with God. This is what I was telling you about Joshua and, and the Lord Jesus. When Joshua met Jesus, he said, who are you for, us or for our enemies? He said, not for neither one of y'all. I'm for the Lord, right? And this is where Christians should be. So again, our, our churches are jacked up because they're blinded by an apartheid discriminatory prejudice that has blinded them from reality. This is like the third time they're going through it because we, we closed our eyes when our Jewish brethren went through the hell they did with Hitler. Then we closed our eyes with the slavery that was going on in the Americas for which once the woke doctrine came out, it really whipped the butts of churches and then all of a sudden your pastors are collapsing everywhere out of guilt. You see what I'm getting at? And here we are again, we're getting ready to watch another optic potentially exterminate a people group because it's happening systematically anyway. It's been going on for a good 40, 50 years. All, every sister Belfort declaration, it's been going on. Do you know that? It's ugly. But that's what was going on in South Africa. God called me, he called me when the, uh, when the battle in South Africa was going on with apartheid, you know, Nelson Mandela and all that. That's when God called me and my eyes were beginning to open up because I was part of what is called the Christian Reformed Community. And the Christian Reformed Church is from the Netherlands. And the Netherlands had a big part in that apartheid movement in South Africa. And they were, the Christian Reformed Church was coming under judgment at that time because they were, on the one hand, preaching the doctrines of grace while enslaving black people in Africa. See what I'm getting at? Like, we're going through that right now. Wake up. We're going through that right now with the Israel-Palestinian thing. Sure, Hamas is a monster. Sure, Hezbollah is a monster. Sure, ISIS was a monster. We created those monsters. Our money plays both sides of that game. I told y'all, Joe Biden was congratulated by Hamas when he was running for president. I sent that out to you guys because they supported him with millions of dollars. And he actually said, thank you for your support. So he's over there playing both sides against the middle. And the American people are being hoodwinked. Like, see this particular Friday night Bible study? This will not make it out of the local region. Facebook and Twitter will make sure this gets shut down. Do you understand? Because that's the battle we're in today. Information is being seized and controlled. I'm going to be talking about that on my Monday show. Across the nations around the world, they are developing these policies to shut down anybody saying anything like I'm talking to you guys about now. So maybe God is getting ready to move us into some really dark times, but there will be times in, a, in one sense in which we've already been through this. Okay? We've already been through this. This one here is going to be exponentially more difficult because it will be global. 
It will be artificial intelligence able to actually penetrate into our homes at the kind of um, biosecurity state level infiltration that you and I have never, ever even imagined. They can see you walking around in your house. They can hear you like right now. All this is all, all this is possible. And, and, and yet 30 percent of the people we know and love don't even want to hear us talking like this, like we're crazy. I'm, I'm absolutely insane talking like this. But somebody got to do it. Barry, so we can shut it down. I got two minutes. Okay, so you talked about... Th- I want to try to make sure this isn't a political question. Uh, but you talked about church and state merging. Okay, so I, I would like to make what I believe is a clear observation about that and just see what your thoughts are on it. Yes, sir. Okay, so for years, without even trying to search it out, I see things like false teachers in this country who some people think are legitimate. I know nobody in here, such as Kenneth Copeland and just many different American Christian pastors, um, merging, coming together, and talking about uh, the the protest is over, and you know, dumb stuff basically. But what I see now, which is undeniable, is a pastor named Rick Warren, who I think he's a false teacher, and um, he has a big following, and he's merging with a lot of churches in America and globally. And now this same man who says he's a Christian and some think he's teaching a gospel, which is, is clearly false in my opinion, he gets to go to the economic forum, he gets to go to the UN, he gets received by these institutions, these global um, political institutions. And they receive him as legitimate. I'm sure everyone in here would know that he's a false teacher. So a lot of quote-unquote Christianity in America is joining with that. They're merging with that, and they're merging politically with, with politics, with the state, to put it simple. So would you agree that I'm in that observation that I'm connecting the church and the state emerging? Absolutely. So when we, absolutely. So I'll, I'll put a bow on it for you. Because most of the people that follow me already know everything that you're talking about in terms of uh, um, uh, Saddleback and Rick Warren. You guys already know. I've sent you material, explicit material. He is a product of Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker is a businessman. This goes back to our dialectical teaching way back at the old church. I've been teaching this for a long time. Rick Warren now is at that level where he is working as a change agent for an ecumenical global unity of churches for the World Economic Forum. But he was doing that back at Saddleback when he sent out the book. Um, what was the name of the book? Purpose-driven. Right, Purpose Driven Life. He was strategically taught how to get all Christians under the big tent of a feel-good ministry that had no gospel behind it. You know, we were, we were deconstructing that and shredding that many years ago. So most of our people that are grounded at grace would know that. Our new people wouldn't know it. 
because our new people are still coming out of and still working through some of the deceptions that they had when they came in here because Christians have, as I said, for many decades been uh, undiscerning. They just haven't been discerning. So what, what our brother's talking about is the merging of the political and religious, but it's been going on for many, many years. I want you to know that, Barry. It's been going on for a long time. It's just coming to a another level of development because of artificial intelligence. And I'll, and I'll close it down here by using this statement around it if you guys want the optic. This is where... This is where we have to be very careful about what we observe happening in Israel, because I believe it's the epicenter for the um, Antichrist global agenda. Okay, I believe it's the epicenter for that. Um, Of course, I'm not talking about the Jewish people in general and in particular, but I'm talking about what's going on over in the Middle East. There's a reason for it, too. I'm not going to spend any time right now talking about it, but it's a great way to shift your eyes off of your own concerns here in your world while we're looking over in the Middle East under a fabricated grounds of unity uh, predicated upon the coming together of politics and religion uh, in the name of a kind of ethereal God that will all umbrella us under massive, massive financial, massive, massive political, massive, massive technological, and massive, massive um, uh, military governance. I want you to know that all of that's working to converge as we speak. And uh, the structures for drawing that net in and getting people under the auspices of smart cities and, and again, a surveillance state and the central banking credit, digital credit system, all of that's in place. You guys already know that. And they're quietly doing it. And when, when it's right, they will either threaten us or just do it. And people who don't have the ability to navigate it won't be able to navigate it. And Revelation 13 says it plainly. They will say, who can make war with the beast? Who can overcome the beast? And because it will be so powerfully and massively structured and staged and offered to you as the best thing yet, I mean, he played his cards, and I know he meant it. Klaus Schwab, he meant it. You will own nothing, and you'll be happy about it. So I'm going to... I know, Don, you wanted to say something. I'm going to just put this out there. You've heard, how many of you guys heard that little quip? You will own nothing. And uh, Okay, but I'm, I'm going to help you understand where that came from if you don't know. That came from the whole concept of ghettos. When you grow up in the ghetto, you own nothing. The government owns everything. And you are a product of the government and you are naively happy about it from generation to generation to generation, every baby's mama to the third and fourth generation of them that don't care to be independent, that don't care to be free, that don't care to practice meritocracy, that don't care to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They're very glad for somebody else to work and pay 30, 40% in taxes to take care of those systems. What this new, new world order is about is making everybody ghettos. 
beautiful, stately, population managed, control 15 minute ghettos. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Now stay with me. And based upon what we know about people, they're going to be happy with it. They're going to be happy with it because we are already living in a soft tyranny and invisible prison psychologically and pragmatically already. Do you understand that? You don't meet people every day that's talking about how valuable their freedom is and how they're working hard at maintaining it and what kind of plans and measures they have to maintain economic and social and political and spiritual freedom. You don't meet people thinking like that. We have stopped generating free thinking men and women. We are creating ghetto oriented, mindset nanny state, parentalism and uh, uh, paternalism, which I taught us two weeks ago on our Monday show. Paternalism is when you want the state to govern you. Parentalism is when the state wants to govern you. See what I'm getting at? And, 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 it, and it, that, model, that model started with our Jewish brethren. That model of the ghetto stuff. See, I'm way overdue. Go back and look it up. Once Hitler started his program, he started squeezing them together. And they were struggling in their conscious cognitive dissonance because they couldn't believe it was actually happening, even though they were getting warnings. And it was squeezing them in. And the next thing they know, you know, their, their rights were being curtailed. They were being surveyed. They were being threatened. And, and they weren't struggling with their own citizens. This is why I took most of y'all through about four or five months of us watching those Holocaust presentations. Do you guys remember that? I did that on purpose because of where we're going. How did that happen? That was a major psyop where you struggle with, can this be? Can this not be? Maybe I'm deluded. No, they weren't deluded. And by the time they woke up, it was often too late, wasn't it? And this is kind of where we are again. See, those were all test pilots on smaller local levels around the world. We're dealing with the big one now. You guys see that. Don, you got an observation. You have the mic. Yeah, there you do. Go. I normally don't speak, as you know. I've been sitting here for like yeah, a year. Yeah, you do. You speak to <laughs> well, everybody speak in here. I'm the microphone. <laughs> You're all right. Uh, I wanted. I was just going to make a quick statement, but now I want to respond to a couple things, and you probably will get this thing uh, banned. Uh, first thing ask. is, I want to say to the people here, I really believe this, a miracle will occur. That's my first thing. Yeah, we can hold dealing, that. We no, can deal with the truth. I love that. So you know he's not a uh, cessationist. <laughs> this is inside theological talk. He believes in miracles. Do you guys believe in miracles? Yeah. I see, do. See, everybody, hold on. Everybody doesn't. This is where we're going in our study on gifts. So let's say you're a Bible-believing Christian. Hold Let on, me ask Donna. my other two questions. I know I want you to. I Thank just you. want to toss this out to the believer. Because see, in our churches, we've had the hostility between the perpetuationists and the cessationists, the people who believe in the perpetuity of the gifts and the people who believe none of the gifts are operating today. Right? You got those two camps. Did y'all know that? 
So remember what I warned you about. Be careful about rising, needing to rise above any dialectic, because what happens in a dialectic is they will control the conversation. They will control what you can think and therefore what side you are on. And sometimes it's not an either or, but a both and or an alternative position that's even much more biblically sound. Am I making some sense? You need to be thinking that through. I like what Don is about to say. Go ahead on, Don. Okay, there's two things I want to address. I, was, I want to address, first of all, the, the latter person, the young man that spoke. Everybody's a young man to me in here, by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, dealing with what's happening in Israel, I totally agree. Uh, I was watching what's going on over there. Uh, as you know, my, my grandfather was one of the founders at the, the Balfour Declaration. Uh, I believe that, uh, that the, there's two hostages by Hamas. They had 200 hostages they took, and there's 2.3 million hostages because these people are hostages yep. of Hamas. Yep. They're a military that stepped in, and once they're that strong, the people of that nation cannot stand up. They're poor people. That's you right. can't stand up with military, and they're not even people of that nation. That's right. <laughs> they took we it talked over. about that. You got so it. they're holding 2.3 million hostages, and now I agree because I'm watching all this happen. Israel is one of the, the largest powers in the world. Uh, the United States and Israel, if they fall, the world falls. But if, if Israel goes, we still have a chance. But if we go, the whole world's gone. China is in a, such a strong position. I believe the one-worlders control China. They, they're one and the same. Uh, so that's what I believe. And what's happening with Israel, I believe uh, that they they're, they're, first of all, they were a diversion. Uh, because what's happening here, that's if you don't pay said. attention to it, I agree. we're in a world of trouble any day now. Everything could collapse. It's that close. Uh, so what I, what I believe is that Israel made a big mistake. And what happened was they now are a power source, but on the world stage, they're totally condemned, and it's rightfully so. So all I can say is uh, they're not doing the right thing. When I saw it happen, I go, this is, this is terrible. Yeah. And our nation is split. Let me tell you the split the nation to make it really simple. You can't try to impeach Biden and put Trump in jail. You keep the nation divided. Yep. Uh, that, that you can't do that. Totally, and that's, to do, that's your other dialectic. You got to know that. I, I, we totally agree with him. Well, I, you, there's more than that, but that's But the I'm just saying it. it's important for that to be stated because that particular theater of conflict is closest to us. In other words, we really do believe in our electoral process as corrupt as it is, you're not going to get 150 million, 200 million people to rise up and purge that thing. So we're kind of hoping that it works out. I simply say this, the game, the, the game that's being played with Biden down, Trump up or vice versa is to continue the divide right. in order for them to continue to control. I totally agree with that. All right, go on. Uh, I really believe we can change this. The whole thing is, I don't know if you watched Tucker Carlson. He had Colonel McCaffrey on. And Colonel McCaffrey kind of agreed with everything. We're in trouble. Everything's falling apart. And he's putting a group together. It's called Our Nation, Our Choice. And they just had their first meeting. And he agreed that it could fall apart anytime. He talks about everything around the world. And I believe that we have the ability to do that. Because the people can change this for this Congress. They could shut the border overnight if they wanted to. But there's, no, there's not enough pressure on them. And he's doing the same thing I want to do. You've got to get the people together. 
to go to the Congress people, overwhelm them, and make them make the changes. And I'm just trying to call him right now and get a hold of him uh, because uh, I believe you can do it immediately. He wants to go through this long process. We don't have that kind of time left. Yeah, we do. This is where you and I have a... <laughs> yeah, we totally disagree. Yeah. It, 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 but a, a charitable one. I, yes. like, I like Don. I, I'm always thankful whenever I have some of my uh, insightful, challenging Jewish brothers uh, among us. And I've already told Don, I have many, a number of Jewish brothers that I talk with. And I've got them on the left and I've got them on the right. Super conservative, super liberal, some balanced. And it's important to, to, to know that because they're becoming center stage. But this is also because you guys, just on a biblical level, I just want you to know, this is part of predictive programming. This was all set up back at the United Nations when the United Nations was established. It knew what its trajectory was going to be towards about this time. Goals 2000, Agenda 21, we're all there. All of this has been strategically occurring for a long time. So in one sense, biblical prophecy is coming to pass, but how we interpret that prophecy is really the critical issue. You know, and again, I'll leave it alone because you guys have heard me enough lay out the different eschatological schemes and the dangers of the ones that are presently prominent are going to keep people divided and and deceived. And as a consequence, um, as a as a consequence, we need to be very careful about what you're going to be hearing from the church, because it will largely be a sort of hands down without critique. Uh, approval, a pro-Israel approval. That's what your church is, because just like uh, uh, Barry was saying, the churches in general are succumbing to a global uh, ecumenical sort of uh, collaboration. All right. That's what you're getting out of your churches. That's that's what's going to happen. So you guys want to sense that and pick up on that when you're hearing, you know, theology taught or preaching or teaching Just make sure there's some entrails going on behind the scenes at the highest levels of power to deceive people, to put them on one side or the other. And it's it's it will come with additional demonic and uh, artificial intelligence. I keep saying that and spectacular technological employment that if possible, even the very elect will be deceived. Uh, that's Matthew 24. I just want you to I just want you to be thinking that through. Um, just stay grounded. Stay optimistic. Um, if, if we do what Jesus told his disciples in the first century to do, we'll be OK. OK, if we do what he told them to do, we'll be OK. You don't have to lose an ounce of sleep at night. If you just he was your master was faithful enough to simply tell you and me, hey, look. This thing is getting ready to fall apart. Don't don't look for a utopia. Don't look for a utopia that's going to fall apart. And be ready to get out of the way of ground zero when it happens. That was so faithful of him. And, and, and thus the church has survived today. I've overgeneralized that, that proposition, but I just got a feeling that we're going to get ready to go through some extremely difficult times if we should come out on the other side. There's a natural impulse in all of us, you guys, to want to believe it's going to be all right. And that's not a bad thing, but it's not equivalent to prophetic truth. Okay? It's not a bad thing. It's just not, for me to want it to be all right doesn't make it going to be all right. 
For me to warn us to kind of wake up and go, whoa, we escaped another bullet. Hillary Clinton didn't get in. You know, we talked about all that. So Hillary didn't get in. We got Trump. And we've got some good and bad out of that situation because he opened up the lid on the swamp and the creatures started really flying everywhere like a bunch of demons, didn't they? And now look at what we're dealing with. And, and, and what we're dealing with requires all of us to be sober. Jesse, I got a question now. <laughs> then I'll, I'll shut up. Wasn't the prophecy that it would take place in the Mideast and Israel would fall and that would be the beginning of the Armageddon? <laughs> Um, or am I incorrect? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't say you're incorrect. Here's what I would say, that we would have to study the four prominent historic views of eschatology to know the validity of that proposition. So, the yeah, you see, I'm confused between the two. I'm trying to save it, and now I'm looking at a prophecy no, that says I, it's no, going to happen. Well, but, no, well, we don't want any of God's elect lost anywhere. We don't want any of God's elect lost anywhere. Uh, And so what we don't want to become. uh, Thank you for your patience, you guys. What you and I don't want to do is repeat history. You and I don't want to be so um, shallow that we can swing on the perilous pendulum of the dialectic and find ourselves on the side of either being a pro-Israel where it can butcher and destroy and slaughter human beings in the name of its own self-preservation. Because once you do that, you're asking for that judgment on yourself. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, and then collective judgment. That's not the gospel. We've given the gospel up when we take that position. That's what our churches don't get. That's what our government does not get, right? Right? Conversely, if you swing too far to the left, and you know, um, all the uh, Palestinians are good. Well, we're denying the gospel again because there's none good. No, not one. We can't destroy life until we give people an opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So we want the world preserved in the sense that we want the gospel to reach God's elect. Do we not? Of course. And that's going to be from every nation, kindred, tribe and tongue, including the Jewish people. So, you know, I remember saying this many years ago. We are going to be dealing with eschatology full bore in a few minutes, okay? It's going to be as vivid and crystal clear in a few minutes. You don't have to take my position. You don't have to take anybody's position. What will help you overcome the deception is being grounded in the word of God and clear on the gospel, but it don't mean we won't be shaken up. You guys join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for my class tonight. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are willing to have sober conversation around your gifting. And of course, I might be able to speak for every one of us in here. Lord, you can use us any kind of way you want to. Any kind of way you want to, Lord. You can employ us. You can resource us. You can strengthen us. You can gift us. You can guide us. You can assign us. You can put us wherever you want to and use us any kind of way you want to. Any kind of way you want to. Just don't leave us idle and don't leave us in the dark. If you may, oh Lord, help us to see what you see so that we can say 
what you see and do the role of a prophet and do the role of a priest. We're asking all this in protections and blessings upon everyone here and all of our families. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.